This is Unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm super excited. I have somebody on the show who's been referred to me from a previous guest, Tyson Franklin. Everybody should check out that episode because he's an amazing dynamic individual and a great connector in his own right. But today, I have Dave Freeze. And Dave Freeze, he's kind of different. He's a lawyer. Well, I won't hold it against him. And he studies a lot in influence and mind control, things of that sort. And I want to start digging into it because we know he does that. I've done a lot of research on him, but we don't really know why or how and how things came about. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, thanks for being on. I was anxiously waiting during that long pause when you said he's kind of. Now, actually, isn't that a form of NLP? Well, I, I, I mean, um, I guess what the folks in, in the NLP world did masterfully were take a bunch of tools from many different disciplines and give them uh, labels and describe a process for modeling them or recreating them. So, yeah, I, I guess you could say that. But uh, there's a really good reason that the Zargynic effect, which is what you're using there, works. Um, the Zargynic effect is when we, we do something and we leave that big space, the mind of the person who's the recipient of that communication sort of fills it in and starts wondering mm. what's going to happen. Uh, Zargynic effect is the cliffhanger. And as long mm. as you don't overuse it and as long as you deliver, so you did, you did deliver, uh, then people become fascinated by it. It's also the basis of another label that NLP gave to a technique called nested loops. So Hmm. if we start telling a story and we stop and we tell another story, people, especially people that like to hear A, B, C, D in order, will be wondering, Mm -hmm. hey, what about that other story? And they'll be anxiously waiting for you to get back to that other story. So it'll be more impactful when you get back to it. And you can sometimes lay the groundwork for better reception of your message in these intervening, interrupting stories. But they work on the same basis, which is when the brain is left wondering what's going on, it it needs to figure that out. Because typically in bioevolutionary terms, when when that sort of thing is going on, when there's incongruity, when there's a gap, when there's something we don't know, we have to figure it out because there's danger there for us. Okay. And is it um, also used by police to help force people to fill in the space because there are those who cannot stand silence? or are not comfortable with it? Yeah, police, interrogators, hostage negotiators all use the big space to let people tell them, or therapists. Um, I have a really awesome example of this that happened to me recently. I went to a functional medicine doc, and I know this stuff. And he said uh, when I came in, hey, tell me why you're here. And so I told him this little kind of prearranged minute or two long minute long story about why I was there. And he said, mm-hmm, and we just said, and which is kind of like leaving the space. He's encouraging me to fill it in. And I know what's going on. I thought, Oh, that's interesting. But now I tell him more. When I teach this to, to audiences, I always say the first answer they give you is always a lie because they're lying to themselves too. Most people, hmm. if you want to get deeper into what's going on behind a request they're making or something they need, 
Uh, most people rationalize it. They come up with a little story they tell themselves, but there's typically a lot more to it. So whether we're talking to a marketer or a therapist or a doctor, when we get people to go deeper, we get past the little quote unquote lie they're telling themselves, the story that they're ready to tell. And he went about six levels deep. I got, he said, and, and then I told him more. And then he just waited, left the long gap. And then I told him more. And then he said, what else? And I told him more. And, you know, by the end, he'd gotten a half an hour of additional stuff out of me that I, by the end, I didn't even realize I was thinking some of these things until he got me to articulate them. Now, is some of this because we're talking about evolution in different parts of the brain and literally we're using techniques that are hitting the lizard brain, which we cannot control. So what you're describing is even, you know, you know what's happening to you, you still can be manipulated. Yeah, exactly. And some of these things are really deeply embedded by evolution in either the the reptilian brain or the or the mammalian brain. And the, the, the sort of modern human brain is able to occasionally notice that they're happening to us, but they can't override these things that have to be done very automatically in nature for us to survive. It's one of the reasons that story, you, you know, we all hear this and there are whole podcasts dedicated to it. And every marketing conference in the world, somebody's there saying, you need to tell a story, but nobody ever explains why that's so powerful. It's a relatively simple explanation, which is that for millennia as human beings, the, the, our ancestors who survived were the ones that were good storytellers and could who list, and who could listen to story because we needed to hear a story about how to get fresh water, where we had to go to move our camp when the seasons changed, how we got there. That was all communicated to us through oral tradition and through story. And so the people that were really bad at listening to stories and following instructions perish. And the people <laughs> who are really good at listening to story and following those directions, they pass their genes on, they became us. But that's still embedded within us that mm -hmm. when we hear story, when our brain goes, oh, here's a story, it lets down its skepticism a little bit. It lets down the barriers. Now, I'm not saying we can't go back and think about a story or a movie we saw sure. and put holes in it. We can. But the initial response is to relax the skepticism powers that we have. And often, if the story is well-constructed and appeals to emotions and goes to other very primitive uh, parts of our brain and tickles them a little bit, it'll be pretty effective. It'll have colored even how we go back and review it again. And, and it'll color our use of skepticism. That makes me think um, also of Paul Bloom and Against Empathy. Um, how we are screwed up in our wiring in the sense of the stories. And by that, I mean, there's a little boy in the well and you and I can picture ourselves as that little boy in the well. And we're desperate. Is he going to get out of the well? Can we rescue him? We care so much for that little boy. Oh, sorry. A hundred kids starved to death over in that school. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the nature the human brain is such a complex beast operating in such a complex world that we develop these cognitive biases, these little tools that are right a lot of the time, but they're wrong a lot of the time too. They're just right more often than they're wrong or often enough for us to navigate the world, which is very complicated in a more simple, easy to handle way. And so it produces these kind of results that you're talking about here. Right. And that made me think too of a uh, negativity bias is a perfect example. When Og heard a noise in the bush, he yes. ran. 
But when Oog heard it, he went to see what was going on. Well, not not every time, but sometimes there might have been a lion in that bush. And so guess whose genes propagated and moved forward? Oog got Odd, eaten. Who ran. Yeah. Well, that's that's true. That's the reticular activating system. It's um, We're getting too much data all the time from our uh, sensory organs. We can't be consciously aware of it. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. And so there's this little piece of software, the reticular activating system in the brain, that is scanning all that stuff. And its job is to scare us a little bit and make little pieces of data seem more scary. So the bias, as you say, of the reticular activating system, which calls our attention to some part of the data that's flowing into us, is to is to make us uh, scared or at least wary. So when we hear the snap of a branch, we assume it's a bear rather than a friend coming to see us. And it is the safer assumption. It has weird effects in the modern world where bears uh, running wild are not totally unheard of, but less common. Um, right. I mean, there's a human tiger, uh, human eating tiger on the ramp on the rampage in, in India. So it's not still not totally unheard of for humans to be eaten by mammals, but rarer. And uh, what happens now is the reticular activating system calls our attention to some data. So when we buy a car, for example, or something that we've never noticed it before, we thought it was very cool, unique, maybe. We see it everywhere the next day because the brain has said, oh, this is important to you. I'm going to oh, show yeah. it to you everywhere. Yeah, that yep, makes total sense. Or you're thinking about something and that's everywhere. and But then that's compounded because we now have internet tracking mechanisms to where, if you will, Big Brother, which is the internet companies who want to sell you things. Well, guess what? You do see it everywhere because they put it there. So mm-hmm. you have a combination of what you're describing I think being reinforced by um, internet companies and things like that. And we're nothing but superstitious natives and it has to, you know, reinforce that loop. Yeah, you're right. It creates a really exaggerated effect of that because the two are compounding one another. I, I have used, um, I like your players almost. Yeah, it is a a negative force multiplier in a way (laughs) it uh, I've used the description that we are just storytelling monkeys. And I forget where I first heard it, but this has helped me. I used to get angry because people would say to me, oh, can you tell me how to become a paid professional speaker? And I, I always would think to myself, I get angry, like, yeah, I'm going to tell you what I spent millions of dollars figuring out over a 30-year period in five minutes, and you're not going to want to do it anyway. But I'd get angry when people would ask me to do things when I felt like they didn't have the right to. And I shared with my brother, I'm going to maybe use the native example now, but I said, uh, I just was, was really liberated by this thing that popped into my mind one day. I thought, Hey, I'm just a storytelling monkey and I have a banana. I have something (laughs) that the other monkeys want. They really want my banana and I get it. And it made me just laugh because instead of being angry, I just thought it's the nature of the beast that I have the banana and they want it. So why would I get angry at that? It's just how it is. Great attitude. That really is. Now let's go to, um, let's go back in time because I feel like I promised something at the beginning and we've talked around it a bit. Now we need to start digging into who is Dave Freeze. No boy. Now I've always tried to avoid answering that question. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure you're going to duck around half of it anyway, but that's cool. That's half the fun. Now, from what I understand, you were almost born into, um, 
shall we say, manipulation or influence or any anything of the sort. I'm not trying to make it a pejorative like many right. do, but influence. Let's just say you were born to influence and it was noticed early by someone who would be an expert in that field. Yes. And I know you're speaking of someone other than my mother, who was a very powerful persuader, influencer, and manipulator. God rest her soul. Uh, yeah, I um, I was born into a very entrepreneurial family. So it was the nature of the beast that I saw applied persuasion going on around me all the time. Because my family, in a variety of ways, had things to sell people, services or products. and things. And so persuasion is where you get people to change their perspective and to be more open to things you have to tell them than they might otherwise have been. But ultimately, they're still going to make their same decisions. It's actually very hard work. What I always learned to shoot for was to be more influential, which is if you're persuasive over and over again and consistently give people really good, actionable information that turns out to be right, then they learn to trust you in a profound way where they turn to you for information before you have to persuade them. So that's a distinction that's always been useful to me. Is that like a Cialdini and persuasion, where you're setting the environment to make them more receptive to a communication versus trying to change a course that they're already taking? Yeah. So I, I think that, that it is a lot of what Cialdini is talking about, like at a big macro level. So yeah, I would use Cialdini's techniques so that when I actually attempted to persuade that it would be more effective... And that by persuading, I'm laying the groundwork then, like Cialdini does, to become influential, where people don't need those other techniques. They just think, I have an important decision to make. Dave's never or Eric's never led me astray. He's always given me good information. I'm going to go back and ask Dave. I trust Dave or Eric as a source of information. And that's when you transition from being persuasive and persuasive to genuinely influential. And so I, I observed that. I didn't have these labels for it at the time, but I really observed that. People in the town where I grew up loved and trusted my grandfather and my father. And I saw what they did largely uh, outside of conscious awareness to, to do that. And um, I was a precocious little bugger. And uh, I think a story that I have not told very often, but that you might be referring to is that um, – uh, my parents also entertained people. They had them to their house. There's nothing like feeding people and entertaining them to build a platform in which you're more persuasive and influential. And at one of those parties, Dr. Frank Husted um, heard raised voices. And he came in. This is I, I don't have an independent memory of this. This is what Frank told me as a sort of a young teenager. He said, uh, I came into this room and I saw these people standing around a kid wearing the red feedy pajamas and it was <laughs> you. And he said you would, they were shouting and pointing. And then after a while they sort of calmed down and dispersed. And Frank came up to me and he had a right arm amputation just above the elbow or maybe just below the elbow. And he put his hand out to shake mine and I reached for it and said, Oh my, you know, there's no hand. There. He <laughs> chuckled. He had a gravelly voice like Milton Erickson. And Frank Husted was a grad student that saw patients in Milton Erickson's practice. And Milton Erickson, for those of you listening, was kind of the father of modern 
medical therapy. He was a psychiatrist, and he was the go-to person that psychotherapists and psychologists sent their um, patients to when they just couldn't seem to make progress anymore. And Milton would get them to get results very, very, very rapidly. So Milton then in turn, along with Virginia Satir, were studied by Bandler and Grinder, and that formed the basis of NLP. But Milton Erickson trained Frank Husted. Frank Husted saw me and he came up to me and he said, boy, what are you doing? And I said, I'm practicing, Dr. Husted. He said, what are you practicing? And I said, I'm practicing making adults really angry and then calming them down. He said, oh, you're going to go far. And in fact, he then invited me to come. And and my brother and I would often go to his office before we could drive. My parents took us. Then we could drive. We drove over. And we would do sessions with with, uh, Frank um, where he both taught us and experimented with all of these magical language patterns of Milton Erickson as interpreted by Frank Husted. But I think Frank's attention to this one made me interested in my own process, made me more consciously aware of it and gave me a set of tools at a very young age that most people will never get. Yeah. I mean, it's sounding like you were like nine, 10 years old. And uh, I think I was like five or six when this thing happened. And then I really worked with Frank from probably 10 or 11 on now. Yeah. Wow. That's uh <laughs> that is an unusual background. And it is. It's peculiar. Yeah, that leads us to the next part. Um, I understand you left home at 16. Did you finish school at that point and then leave home or just said, I'm out of here? It's a great question. I was precocious with um, a bad attitude in the following way. I had a good attitude toward life, but a bad attitude because if I thought somebody, no matter what their age or position, was being silly or ridiculous or not using their head, uh, I was not shy about saying that, which does not make you very popular a lot of times. So when I left home at 16, I went to be an exchange student and it gave me this opportunity that again, many people never had. Uh, No one had any preconceived notion where I was going, which was New Zealand. Mm. And there were clean slate. Yeah, totally clean slate. And most people don't get that. And I vowed to myself that I was going to be more careful this time about how I used my, my uh, powers to use them more for good than for evil. And um, I I got really a lot better, too, at listening to other people and not mm-hmm. just telling my story. Because there was a lot of demand for me to tell my story. I was in this foreign country and people had questions about America and who I was and why I was there. And mm-hmm. uh, I just found that if you said to them, well, I'll, I'll answer all your questions, but tell me a little bit about yourself first, that that made me, made them trust me more made them think I was smarter even probably than I was. And um, mm-hmm. it empowered me to be much more um, helpful to them when I told them my stories and answered their questions. I knew a lot more about them by then. And uh, so I had a wild time in Australia and New Zealand in 1976, 77, and 78. I see. Now, um, I feel like there's some missing years in there between – you're going to Australia and, and doing all that mm-hmm. and then becoming a lawyer and doing your practice and what you're doing now. Yes. 
So I made uh, when I was in New Zealand. This this kind of sets the stage for the missing years. And I already I, I already chuckled when you told me you wanted to ask me something about that because for whatever reason it's obvious to me that there's this big chunk of time missing, and no one else really asks about that. So it's very amusing. But um, when I was in New Zealand, I became friends, for example, with a member of parliament who ultimately was going to go on to be the minister of defense, which became important wow. and interesting to the United States because uh, New Zealand banned U.S. nuclear ships from entering their ports, which they had not ever done before. And so I just happened to be friends with the person who was making these sorts of decisions or deeply involved in New Zealand policy. And then I became friends with the uh, Speaker of the House of Parliament, who saw me speak as a 16-year-old to a number of Rotary Clubs and other organizations. That was Sir Roy Jack. And uh, he had me come down. So as a 16 or 17-year-old, maybe, I went and spoke to the National Party and spent the day in his flat at the uh, at Parliament House and had dinner there in the evening where you were announced. It was a whole, just a crazy thing. And the reason I tell this story is it changed my whole belief and mindset about what was possible, which is hmm. a very powerful tool. I mean, I now, as a 17-year-old, had this portfolio of experiences that people many years older than me never had. And they gave me new perspectives and new way of thinking about things. I actually left New Zealand on a, on a, on what's called a single entry visa. I didn't realize it at the time. And I went to Australia. And then when I came back from Australia uh, at the border, they said, yeah, no, you have a single entry visa. You're going to have to hop over mm-hmm. back to the United States, which would have meant I could never have come back. I just didn't have the money, nor did my family have the money at the time. It was super expensive to just fly back and forth. And I still sure. had plans. So I said uh, to a border agent, they had me in like a tiled interview room. And mm-hmm. um, I said, well, I don't know. Um, could you call my friend, Sir Roy Jack? He's the Speaker of the House in Parliament. And they <laughs> laughed. Thought, yeah, this kid coming back. Uh, from Australia is not a friend of Sir Roy Jack. And they got on the phone and uh, they were this kind of a mocking tone of voice. And then suddenly he stiffened up a little bit. And he said, yes, Yes, sir. sir. Yeah. And I guess Sir Roy had gotten (laughs) off. And and then he, he he asked if he could change phones because I don't think he wants me to see what's about to happen. And he leaves. (laughs) And then he comes back in and basically says, look, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but, (laughs) <laughs> you know, here's your new VC, you little bugger. <laughs> so uh, all of these things uh, lead me to believe that if you really start to understand what people want and need in life and you understand how they make decisions and you understand how, how they form beliefs and why they might change them. I mean, you mentioned to me, uh, may, may I say his name on in the interview, Chase Hughes? That's how I blurted sure. it out there. You you mentioned Chase, who you say, you know, you know works in this world of persuasion too. And I, I think he's in that mm-hmm. an analogous kind of business. And mm-hmm. once you understand some of these things, life is just very different. And uh, so I came back to the United States. I had a high school diploma from New Zealand. And then I had a year of preparatory school. Their system's a little different than ours. But I had never taken the SATs in America, and I didn't have a high school diploma. 
So that would usually have meant that somebody would have just gone back and finished high school. I convinced the high school I just needed gym class and a American history course to graduate. And then I went to a college or sinus college and convinced the president to let me in with no reason to and to take a full slate of credits at a nearby college. So I was like a kid at college. And these things just kept happening and happening and happening. How old were you at that time? So I was back. I was probably 17, just about to turn 18, 17. Okay. Yeah. So what is what would have been my senior year in high school. And, um, and, uh, and then by the time I got to college, um, I, I went to Europe with my, real college that I was going to for, for four years. I finished in, in three, which is relevant to your question. What happened to these missing years? Sure. Uh, and my wife is still there. And so while I was a high school senior, I went to school in Europe. I was in London and um, I met a, I was introduced to a gentleman and uh, one thing led to another. And, and I went back into a program where I was trained by some very, very smart people. And, Interestingly, I I hit this program at just the right time. The government was experimenting with lots of things and was open to the idea that negotiators had a lot to teach interrogators and interrogators had a lot to teach negotiators and hostage negotiators and and, uh, that they were open to uh, what Erickson uh, had been doing and open to NLP and the the uh, the tools of those kinds of things. And so I was exposed to all manner of phenomenal teachers. Uh, so while, um, while I was in college and then um, for the year when I had finished and was kind of waiting for Robin to graduate, I spent a lot of time shuttling back and forth to Washington and uh, getting real field experience in, uh, in various kinds of interrogation and interviewing skills. So again, Kind of cool for somebody that's 21 years old. Absolutely. Um, not to interrupt, but to interrupt, I guess. Chase, the guy we were talking about before, mm-hmm. has complained a few times, and I think it's been interesting, that academia is completely blind and stupid mm-hmm. about these techniques, that someone can be training to be a psychiatrist or psychologist, and maybe you'll spend one hour mm-hmm. on this stuff. And I've talked to him on the side, and that's why I want to run it with you. And my thoughts are that Zig Ziglar could probably teach more about <laughs> persuasion and behavior control than um, a top flight psychologist. Yeah, I mean, these things are starting to be taught and starting to be examined. But what we see, like, so, for example, science is using fMRI, functional MRIs, where you could sort of see mm-hmm. what's going on in the brain to now scientifically verify a lot of the things that Chase and I were probably taught but when we were taught them or when we expounded on them in our experience or expanded our use of them, it was still anecdotal. We sort of suspected mm-hmm. why these things work. Like for the first time ever in the last 10 years, science has been able to prove that all decision making at least originates in the emotional centers of the brain. Right. And then we rationalize it nanoseconds or seconds later, which is quite a long time in, in neuroscience. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So we sort of always suspected that. I'll give you another good example. When I was at an Ivy League law school, learning to negotiate through rational economic-based negotiation models, I thought, based on my earlier experience in interrogation and interviewing, mm, these guys don't have this right. They're assuming that people make rational decisions. 
I didn't have science behind me or able to prove that. And then one day I remember Chris Voss shows up uh, in a negotiating competition against all these lawyers from Harvard and Yale and Penn and Columbia. And he just takes them to the cleaners. He just cleans them out because by then he's negotiating for people's lives. And he realizes Mm. it's all emotional. They want to be understood. They need to, I mean, uh, Voss, for example, teaches how important it is to get the first no. And I've always thought that was important just intuitively. If you could get a marker. Yeah. If you get somebody to tell, you no, then they feel empowered you know information about what they will and will not do or what they're thinking and they feel heard. And uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the, it's going back to that, that issue that you talked about at the start where you left that big space. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. leaving that big space is in negotiation. It lets them articulate things. If you slow it down, and let them tell you things. They'll tell you all sorts of things that put you in a way better position when you finally get to the negotiation. A lot of times when I give a speech, when I'm meeting with a client or I'm teaching this before we get started or I'm in a negotiation, I'll say, oh, before we even get started, I just have a quick question. What happens is if I say before we get started and I kind of push my hands down, like I'm actually literally dropping a barrier, the mm-hmm. unconscious mind of the person who's with me or the audience goes, oh, we're not even getting started yet. So that's a much more relaxed environment in which to work. And, right. and it's not till sometimes 15, 20, 30 minutes later that people will go, hey, shouldn't we get started? And of course, we got started <laughs> when I said we're not getting started. But I'm in a much awesome. better informed spot. Well, yes, and you are controlling the conversation. But today I get to control, so we're going to go back you and are. we're going to start covering the rest of that time. Yeah. So I, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, I'll dodge whenever I can. But uh, I had this year and uh, I'm now exposed to, so this is in 1979, 80, 81, what I'm going to describe to you. Mm-hmm. I'm now exposed to a whole host of really of other really outstanding teachers, which included, among others, Bandler and Grinder. And I did train with Chris Voss at one point. And, um, but one of the most extraordinary experiences that I had was that I went to the Monroe Institute. Now, this is the part that gets hard for people to take because it sounds mm-hmm. like a totally fanciful tale. But while I was at the Monroe Institute and I was there with naval officers and other, you know, very sane people. Um, they were exploring remote viewing. So I don't know if you've ever had anybody on the show that was involved in the remote viewing project or not. But um, never heard of it. Yeah. So the Soviets uh, were believed by U.S. intelligence in the. Oh, is this criminology? No, a little different. Little in the seventies and eighties. Oh, okay. They thought the Americans thought, oh, that the Soviets have proven their ability to do what amounted to psychic spying, which is that they could get information oh. from a non-local source, um, not human intelligence, but that they perceived it psychically. So the the United States launched a whole series of programs designed to see if they could recruit people that had this ability, if they could identify people that had this ability, if they could improve the ability, if they could teach that ability to other people. And uh, while I was there, we had a number of, of, uh, of scientists come and explain why it was that this was absolutely, the experience we were all having was absolutely true. 
And hmm. so the, they were basically explaining unified field to us and saying that all matter is energy. And at one level, at least, hmm. it's all connected. And that as individual humans, we create these filters that detach us a little bit from that and let us have a sense of individuality. But that some people are better than others at letting down those filters and tapping into all the information that's around them. So this is too long a story to tell, but suffice it to say that while I was in this program, I'm once again now exposed to a totally radically different way of looking at the world and the universe and human capability. And I now have lots of both scientific and anecdotal evidence to show me that these things we're doing are real and that they work for a real reason. I, I used to say to my partner who poo-pooed this, one of my law partners, I'm in a, in a firm of folks I really love practicing law with. And uh, John used to say to me, oh, there, this, this remote viewing is just silliness. There's no, humans just don't have this psychic capability. And the the CIA is certainly not interested. And I did not work for the CIA, but I liked the fact that he said that because he, um, I took him to the CIA's internship web page where they recruited summer mm-hmm. interns. And I'm going to paraphrase it now. And, and, it, and they redo it from time to time. So I don't know if it says this anymore, but it used to say, hey, I'm paraphrasing. Hey, kids, um, if you like these sorts of things, then we might be interested in working with you and the CIA could be a great career. For example, are you interested in and capable in higher math, uh, foreign languages, parentheses, especially Farsi, uh, <laughs> uh, satellite reconnaissance, image interpretation, uh, remote viewing. And so it, it was right there. Just slid in yeah, there. John said like, Oh, they don't do this and they don't spend our tax dollars on this. And I said, well, if they don't, I'm just curious why the CIA would have it you know, in this list of special skills that they like. So that always disturbed him. Hmm. Okay. I, I was drawing an association with criminology, which is the whole, the general was standing next to Stalin yesterday, but now he's three down. Yes. So that was also constantly going on. There were whole analysts, groups of analysts working on what it meant when that general moved a couple of spots. But this was more like, um, we are going to uh, give you an assignment that the, our, our tasking was always in, in the form of a six digit number when we were doing these experiments. So you'd get a number, for example, one, four, five, six, seven, two. And that number was uh, generated by a random number generator and then assigned to an envelope. Remember this was in primitive days and that envelope contained a satellite reconnaissance image, for example, of something. And uh, so nobody that you were talking to, could know what that number meant because that could allow you to somehow get that information from them. And they wanted to make sure that you were getting that information from the unified field, if you will, not Mm. from a person who might know what was in that envelope. So there was a, there was a very complicated process to how we would provide information that we found to be associated with that tasking and then how it was interpreted to find out if, if we were accurate or not. But it wasn't a Ghostbusters quiz? It was not. It was their own version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> if you remember uh, Bill Murray who's trying to pick up women. <laughs> exactly. But 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 the, the thing, I mean, you ask about this period of time 
that 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 program that that was run by the um, CIA and Army jointly was declassified in the eighties. Um, oh, cool. But my time at the Monroe Institute was very interesting to me, and again opened my mind to the idea that um, you know that there were all sorts of things that had not been obvious to me that were true, that, that um, our sensory perception is just sort of a parenthetical. And in science, there's infrared and x-rays that fall well outside of our visual ability to see them, but they're no less real. They're out there. And so um, all of these things sort of conspired in the end uh, to make me very good at helping people to, to make new decisions about what they thought were right and wrong and cooperating, providing information. And so that made me a very good interviewer. Well, this is awesome. And I love the fact that we cover some really new territory. Yeah, that's not a story I tell lots of people. But now Which people is, will hear it. Exactly. And this is going to lead you in. I want to have you back. I want to cut it here because you have a lot of other stuff that's practical and useful. And this should just whet everybody's appetite. Things like the OODA loop and the six word question yeah, and talking to people, how to talk to your kids and things like that. I think we have a whole nother show that we need to do. Yeah. I think today sort of maybe explains how it was that I came to either discover or really learn and improve those things and apply them. And then I'm happy to come back and talk to people about how they can do them because they have the capacity to change people's lives. Those techniques, those multipliers. I I look forward to that. And Hopefully that whets everybody's appetite. So subscribe now. And thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic. Love talking to you. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate entertain and inspire you check it out you'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts or you can go to my website tysonfranklin.com